0: Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, just the privilege of working our way through it. And I ask this morning that we would humble ourselves before it, that we would be teachable, that uh, we would come this morning with attitudes of of readiness for your Holy Spirit to stir our hearts. Um, Lord, as you expose sin or as you expose places where we need to grow, I ask, Lord, that you would help me as your messenger to proclaim your truth. And, Lord, um, that you would use my words, that that they would reflect, Lord, what is in your text and what you desire for your people today. And, Lord, we want to give you all the praise and the glory for what you're about to do. In your precious holy name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin by asking you a question. When you were a child, when you were young, and someone asked you the question, What do you want to be when you grow up? What did you say? If you were to ask children today what they would want to be when they grow up, there's a number of things that they might be tempted to say. A fireman, a policeman, a teacher, a a basketball player, um, a soccer player, an actor, an inventor, a ballerina, a singer, the President of the United States... You can go on and on and on. And I wonder if those children actually became what they said they wanted to be that week, right? But there's this idea of what do you want to be when you're older? And I wonder what David wanted to be when he grew up. I wonder what he thought it would be like when he grew up. Do you think that he envisioned that God would choose him To be the king of Israel? Do you think that he envisioned one day standing before the armies of Israel and the Philistines and defeating the giant Goliath and carrying his head in one hand to the king? Do you think he envisioned leading armies against the Philistines and being victorious over and over again? Do you think he envisioned wandering as a refugee in the wilderness, hiding out with? Some ragged men because the king was chasing him to kill him. Do you think that he envisioned meeting and marrying a woman like Abigail? Now, a lot had happened to David, and I'm sure that he could not have imagined that he was king of Israel or that he was living in a city like Jerusalem to call home, that he has this growing family and That he would have the presence of God with him. But that is his situation. Here is David, king, in this this, uh, powerful city called Jerusalem. With a growing family and with the Ark of the Covenant central in that nation. And he was grateful to God. And he is reflecting in this chapter on all God has done for him, and he wants to do something great for God. Now, how many of you thought to yourself, ever, I want to do something great for God? It's a good youth ministry sermon, right? Do something great for God. Well, William Carey, missionary to India, also known as the father of modern missions, said this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. There's a sense in which the words of 2 Samuel 7, 1-17, our text for today, are an exposition of that statement. Maybe not in the way that you might expect it to take place. As we journey through this passage, we need to note that this is a very significant passage in the Old Testament. It's a great text in the Old Testament. Now, of course, the whole of the Scriptures are fully inspired, but there are some texts of Scripture that are, I want to say, more robust or more pregnant with meaning and application, and what we have here is God's covenant with David, a covenant that began early on, was really kind of formulated with Abraham, and then repeated to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses, and now it is given to David, In this Davidic covenant, God will add some meat to the bones of his promises to the people of Israel, but this covenant is set in a greater context, and it's a context of gratitude. David is contemplating God's goodness to him, and it moves his heart. And as we journey through this passage, what I want to draw your attention to what I want you to see that, that really is, is, is oozing from this text as the story goes on is the character of our covenant-making God. There's a, t- a temptation sometimes as we go through Scripture, as we go through stories, to focus on the individual. And there's a place for that. But as the story unfolds, as this covenant unfolds, it's the Davidic covenant. Well, it's actually God's covenant to David, and we're going to see aspects of the character of the covenant making God unfolded. Who is this God who keeps his promises? How does he behave? How does he work out his plan? Can we trust his promises to us? Does he really care about his people? How does he respond to sinful man? And to help us understand how this passage fits together, we need to, to see that there's a word here that marks out this text. It's the word house. It's actually used eight times, but in three different ways. You see the first house in verses 1 through 3, the second house in verses 4 through 7, and the third house in verses 8 through 17. So let's begin this morning as we, as we seek to discover this, this character of Of this covenant making God, as as David now is reflecting on his goodness to him. And he wants to respond to that. And so we begin with a palace house, a house that is David's palace. Now, do you ever think to yourself, I want to do something great for God? You probably have. You probably thought to yourself, you know, I want to do something that's going to have an impact for the kingdom. So you've come up with some ideas, you've kind of had kind of a vision moment or a strategy moment, and you've thought of some things that you want to do. Well, David did, and it was born out of a season of rest, out of a season of prosperity and security. And notice in verse 1, David's great desire. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now David, looking at all God has done for him, is concerned with the disparity between his new palace built with cedar and the fact that the ark of the covenant, that that place where God dwells with his people, is simply in a temporary tent. And he has this great idea It's a God centered idea. It's a respectful idea, and it makes complete sense. Why why should I live in this beautiful house and God's ark be in a temporary tent? So it's a commendable desire. And he isn't seeking to increase maybe uh, attention to himself. He's not trying to uh, to make his name great. He's seeking to glor- glorify God with this desire. He wants to express his gratitude for, uh, to God for, for the rest and the security and the prosperity that he's experiencing. In fact, he expresses that, heart, that heart's desire in Psalm 132. Uh, listen to verses 4 and 5. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This is part of his passion. This is part of his desire. He wants to honor God here with his prosperity. Now, there's something admirable about David's desire um, as he reflects on his prosperity. He is fully aware that God uh, is the one who has been gracious to him. He's fully aware that it is God that has been at work in his life to bring about all these things. And he responds in gratitude and wants to do something great for God. Now, my question for you is this. Is that true of you? When you reflect on all that God has given you, when you think about your security, when you think about your prosperity, when you think about God's blessing to you, how does that cause you to respond? Some people respond in a not-so-great way to prosperity, They don't handle it too well. In fact, some people, uh, in the midst of trial and difficulty, and I would say financial hardship, they really lean on God. They're opening their Bibles, they're praying, they're trying to figure it out, and they're, they're trusting God, and they're leaning on Him. But when prosperity comes, they just kind of start to slide and start to drift and start to neglect what they were doing when prosperity wasn't there. It's a real temptation that happens to so many of us. Others, however, see prosperity as a platform for generosity for the glory of God. They they increase their giving to the church. They look for ways to encourage their brothers and sisters in Christ by, by maybe helping out needs that no one else needs to know about. They think of ways of investing in kingdom priorities rather than selfish pursuits. Your priority doesn't necessarily mean that you have to build more palaces or toys to be in those palaces. Your prosperity actually may be a, a, the basis of God using you to bless other people. So there's different ways that we can look at this. How do you respond to the prosperity that God has given you? And by the way, friends, living in the United States, we are all prosperous. I don't, I don't know anyone that's sitting here in, in front of me right now that is, that is in poverty, like we would typically think of poverty. Most of you drove here, especially on a rainy day. Most people in this world don't even have a car. I just think, we, we've got to put things in perspective. God has, God has blessed us. And I know there's, there's difficulties, there's things that happen, but, but we are a prosperous people. Now, let's not only think about David's desire, but also now Nathan's great encouragement. Look at verse 3. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is... Is with you. Now, this is the first time that we've encountered Nathan the prophet. And he is going to be a key factor in David's um, role as king. And we'll see that unfold in the next few chapters. But Nathan, in his response to David's great idea, seeks to encourage David. You might want to say, in today's vernacular, this is what he's saying David, follow your heart, dude. I mean, this, this sounds like a great idea. Now, the problem with that kind of statement, follow your heart, is that one's heart is a sinful, selfish place that usually is producing desires that are contrary to God's purposes and will. Just simply saying, follow the desires of your heart, really is bad advice. Um, It sounds spiritual, but friends, it's nothing more than pagan advice. But Nathan's response is a little bit more theologically nuanced. He says three things in his reply. First of all, the Lord is with you. In other words, I see that this desire has come from a true understanding of God's activity in your life. And that this is born out of gratitude for that. And so he then says, go. I'm behind your idea. It sounds great. Do it. Don't wait. Get going. And we know from the context that Nathan's advice, although sound and sensible, was wrong. Although he was encouraging David. See, he wasn't responding prophetically. He was responding out of his own judgment after assessing the situation. And I don't necessarily think that if any of us were Nathan at this point in time, that we would say anything different. And friends, it's worth us at least stepping back and recognizing that Even wise men are sometimes wrong. Seeking godly counsel, friends, when we're making big decisions, is something that God expects from his children. Proverbs 12, 15 says this The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. But we must always consider that counsel, that advice in light of God's word. All of us are advice givers. All of us give counsel. The question is, what advice are we giving? Is it God-centered? Is it word-centered? Has it taken into consideration all of the facts? Is it advice that is patient and prayerful? And we must be careful that we can distinguish between two things when we're speaking on the authority of Scripture or when we're simply speaking out of our own personal opinion. There's a big difference. Now, that's David's great desire. That's David's house, the palace. But he wants to build another house. And that brings us to the the next house in this passage. He had a great thought, born out of genuine gratitude. But now we'll see that David's human plan will be corrected by God's revelation. What David wants to do is not necessarily what God wants to do. It's interesting in the story, isn't it, that, that Nathan gives this advice to David the king and then... They separate, and then God comes along to Nathan and says, "You know, kind of knocking on his door, says, Nathan, we need to talk. And this is what we find now in the rest of this passage. Look at verse 4. We'll read down through um, verse 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people uh, of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now as we look At the word of God to Nathan, I want you to notice God's wisdom, first of all, and then God's humility, the wisdom of God here, and then particularly concerning Nathan, the wisdom of God concerning Nathan. It's worth reflecting first on Nathan. He is the advice giver in this section. His advice to David was good advice, but it wasn't God's advice. And it is a reminder that we must be willing, as advice givers, or counselors even, to be willing to check the counsel and the advice that we have given with God's word, even after the fact. That I can remember times when I have, as a pastor, met with some people, and they are sharing the story of whatever it might be, this big decision or this problem. And so I give them advice. And I remember going home and, and that night just, just not being able to, 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 to sleep because my mind is, is wrestling and, and, and my heart is struggling and, and I'm thinking about the advice that was given and, I, and I'm convinced that, that maybe that advice was not sound because I, I didn't have all the facts. And I attribute that not to my mind being mindful, but to God's Holy Spirit working in me and stirring some things in me so that I'm willing to check myself. And then the very next day, at the very next opportunity, calling those people and saying, you know, this is the advice I've given you, but I didn't take this into consideration. Is there more to the story? Is there, are there more facts that would really help us come to a right conclusion? Now, the point here is this. Even we who are advice givers must be willing to check that advice and to be be corrected in the advice that we've been given, or sorry, that we've given, and maybe then have to undo because we are convinced now that that advice was not helpful or accurate or complete. That's what happens to Nathan. There's also this wisdom of God that's, that's fleshed out concerning David. God gently challenges David's great desire with the words of Nathan. He speaks to Nathan. He says, Nathan, this is what I want you to say. So this is God speaking through Nathan. And he's saying this, can God dwell in a house? (laughs) You know, we talk about the church sometimes being the house of God. Well, this is the place where we come to meet him corporately. But God is not limited to a building He's certainly not limited to the Ark of the Covenant of God. That Ark was a representation of God's presence with his people. There was significant symbolism and actual, you might want to say, uh, activity with or without the Ark. It had its place in reminding God's people of his presence or his lack of presence. But you cannot confine the infinite creator into a building or into an Ark. He says, I've lived with my people for a long time and have not needed a house. I'm not asking anyone in Israel to build me a house. Now, it's worth noting that although God rejects David's desire to build him a house, he doesn't reject David. Right? He's not saying, David, you're such an idiot. Why would you think of something like that? No, God understands what's going on here. He understands David's heart. He understands David's desire to glorify God by building him a house. But he's saying to David, listen, not yet. And ultimately, not you. And we know that by the fact that God identifies David to Nathan using gracious, gracious language. He says, my servant David which is a title only given to three others before him, Abraham, Moses, and Caleb. Now, friend, God's children often come up with good ideas that they want to do for God. A few years ago, um, I wanted some comic relief, and a, a pastor friend recommended a book. And so I began reading a book called Just Shy of Harmony by Philip Gully, You may have heard about it, but it's a story about a pastor who ends up in a country town in a country church called Harmony, where he encounters a very eccentric congregation. One man in this congregation, his name is Dale Hinshaw, and he's come up with a great new evangelistic idea. You see, he saw Ripley's Believe It or Not, and in the story in Ripley's Believe It or Not, there's this man that says um, that one day he was getting ready to, to make breakfast and he, he cracked open an egg into the pan and as he started to cook the egg, he saw that in the middle of the yolk was this piece of paper. And so he fished out the piece of paper and on this piece of paper was a name and a phone number. And so he called that phone number and it was a woman. And to make the story short, he ends up, marrying this woman. And so this guy's idea is this. Is I'm going I'm to print up short verses of scripture that are very, very powerful in really small font. And I'm going to go out to the chicken coop and I'm going to mix all these scriptures with their food. And what we're going to do, it's a great evangelistic tool. We're going to have scripture eggs See, here's what he was envisioning. He was envisioning the fact that people would get up in the morning and they would make their coffee and they would make their their bacon and they would pop the eggs into the frying pan. And as they're frying them, they'd be put on the plate afterwards and they would sit down to eat. And in the yoke would be this little passage of Scripture. And God was going to be glorified. God was going to be honored because now we're using eggs evangelistically. And this pastor had to deal with this guy who was proposing this to his church council as something that he wanted funding for. God's children often come up with good ideas that they want to do for God. Oh, by the way, he had scripture to back it up. After all, Jesus did say, His yoke was easy and His burden was light. (laughs) Now, you know, it's a funny story, but sometimes. What people have in mind and they are convinced that God wants them to do, and the reasons why it is what they you know, feel God wants them to do, um, are not necessarily always sound. We must recognize that not every good idea is God's plan. Just because your heart is stirred, or for some reason you have a passion for some kind of particular ministry doesn't always mean that God wants you to do it and doesn't necessarily mean that God wants it done now. It may be a good idea, but he may not want you to be the one to do it, and he may not want to do it now. Now, I've been in church contexts where the thinking is this. If someone comes and says... Hey, I'm really eager to serve God, and I believe God is calling me to do XYZ ministry. That, that you should just affirm them and, and send them off to do it. Oh, it's great. If God is stirring you to do it, great. We want to get behind you. We want more people you know, being moved by God to do things for Him. The problem is what if that isn't what God wants them to do? What if they're not qualified? What if they've just been like you know, watching a Christian infomercial and they're just like, oh, I've got to do it. What if they really don't know what they're getting themselves into? What if the burden they are experiencing is really a passing whim rather than a God-centered calling? See, not all of our dreams or plans are of God. Even when they are well-intentioned or born out of genuine hearts, Desiring to honor and serve God. Strong feelings, strong uh, intentions, encouragement from others is not enough. What you're desiring to do may not be God's will. 1 John 5.14 says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, He hears us. So it's really important then that that we have a a good understanding, a good grasp of how we discern the will of God. So here are a couple of questions. How do you know that this is of God and not a whim of your emotions? How do you know that your desire is not born of sinful or selfish desires? Friends, many, if not most, uh, in most cases, we, we need God's wisdom to be affirmed by those who are leaders in the church. Now I realize you could be or you could attend or you could you maybe have been in a context where leaders in the church were not men of God, were not men of the word and would not give godly counsel. But the charge for those who should be leading the church is that they should be men of the word. They should be giving a biblical solid counsel. You should be able to trust them. And you're facing a difficult situation. You're thinking about maybe this, this big thing you want to do for God. There is, there's a place to, to, to go to, to, to get counsel and get direction and get guidance. When a person goes rogue, in other words, they do their own thing to pursue God's calling, i put that in quotes, and and they don't appreciate or listen to godly counsel they're seen from their, their church elders or even their church family, you have to ask yourself, is this really of God? Now, I know. There's exceptions to the case, right? There are people who have been called to missions, and they say, hey, I want to go to such and such place, and their church leadership said, well, no, you don't need to go there. Well, there's a, there was a problem with the theology that was going on there. So there, there's, there's ways in which we need to assess the situation properly. But if God has given you leadership, come to that leadership and seek help with that leadership. I, I, I really appreciate um, uh, Kevin DeYoung and his ministry. And he's written a book uh, that I think is really helpful. It's called Just Do Something. It's on discerning the will of God. Um, The subtitle is, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. And the sub-subtitle is, or, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. A lot to think about there. Because a lot of times how we discern God's will is not necessarily God's way of discerning God's will. There are things that we convince ourselves are true based on things that... We just simply want to see as indicators for what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. It's really important, friends, to be considering God's will carefully. Now notice not only the wisdom of God, but notice also the humility of God. I love this in this text. Just think about how God responds now to what David is desiring. Did you catch the heart of God in these few verses? God is saying to David... I have been happy to move about in a tent because I want to be with my people Israel. How many times that expression, my people Israel, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, verse 11, God loves to be with his people. So God's heart is for his people Israel. He delights to move around, to be on the go with his people when they're on the move. He's saying, "How can I settle down in a house until my people have settled down themselves?" And it's a reminder that God's omnipresence, that's the fact that he is everywhere is not a distant attribute of God that his presence is very personal and passionate, it is his joy to be with us anywhere we move and everywhere we may go. One of the sad parts and joyful parts of being a church is that we see some people that we've learned to love say God is directing us to step away to another town, another place. And yet at the same time, it is our joy to be a part of that because we know that God moves people, and God goes with people as they move, and God brings people. And we recognize the beauty of God's omnipresence in our lives. He loves to be a sojourner with us, to be wandering with us, to to, to give us rest, to give us counsel and guidance during those difficult times, to protect us and to assure us of safe passage to our final resting place. Oh, what a wise, humble, and condescending God we have. He loves to be with us. So, do you want to do something great for God? David does, but David quickly finds out that God has other plans. How would we respond if our desire to do something great for God is trumped by God Himself? Good ideas they may be, but God doesn't need our help and service. Say that carefully. You may have a good idea that you think is going to rock the world for Christ. But hear this. God's going to do what God's going to (laughs) do. He may use you. He may not use you. He may use your idea, but that doesn't mean he's going to use your idea now. He may use your idea, and someone else is going to be the one that actually does it. So, are you willing to submit yourself to that kind of a God? So we move from a palace house to a temple house to a dynasty house. Now God is saying to David, you want to build me a house and I appreciate that, but not yet and not you as I've chosen another. Instead God says, I will build you, David, a house and that house is a dynasty house. So rather than David being the builder of a house for God, it's God who says, "I'm going to be the builder of a house for you." Not what David expected. And God now wants David to pre- to pay attention and be strengthened by his grace and his promises. And so we first of all look at the grace of God, in particular the past grace of God in the life of David. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies. You see those three things that that God says he has done for David. I chose you to be the ruler over my people Israel. You are a shepherd of your family's sheep. You were low on the totem pole, so to speak. You were destined to be the grunt and the runt of that family. But I had different plans for you. Now you are shepherding my children, Israel. He says, I've been with you through all of your trials. Think of Goliath. Think of Saul throwing his spears. Think of the Philistines. Think even of those times when I saved you from yourself. And now... You are the king of my people. And I cut off all of your enemies from before you. Oh, you may have been present, but hear this, David. I was the one that accomplished that for you. Yeah, I mean, Saul may have killed his thousands, and David may have killed his tens of thousands, but it was God who did it all. That's the point. I was with you. This is past grace. Then there's future grace. This is grace to David, that is, he is yet to experience. And it, it talks about David as well as Israel here. Let's read it and look at God's future grace. He says, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And... I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now just notice the structure of what's going on here in this future grace section. He says, David, this is what I am going to do with you. I'm going to make you a great name. And it ends here with David, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And friends, structurally, this is, this is a sandwich. And what, what God is saying here is, David, you're at the beginning. David, at your end. But my real heart, my real desire in even working through you is for my people. And to Israel, he says, I will appoint a place. I will plant them. I will protect them. You see, David is the means by which God works among his people. David is not the focus. The people Are the focus. And friends, that's a huge reminder. We look at David in this story and we look at the ascension of David to the throne, but behind all of that is a God who is not just concerned about David, it's a God who's concerned for his people. And that is always the case with leadership. So when we this morning prayed over JD and the elders were standing behind him, this this move to establish eldership in the church is is not so that the elders can be the focus of attention. The point here is so that God's people can be taken care of by being under shepherds for the great shepherd and the good shepherd. His people are the focus. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God that he has given David. That's the grace of God that he's given us. But now we move from the grace of God to the promise of God. He says, Not you. You're not the one that's going to do this, but your descendants will. And friends, this is where God's covenant with David really actually begins. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 2 Samuel 7 12 through 17 does what a lot of prophetic passages do. Think of prophecy as like a telescope. It looks down the corridor of time, and it it sees these different events during the corridor of time, but in these verses, that telescope is like scrunched up back together again. So it seems like they're all kind of sitting on top of each other. But the idea here is that there's something future looking. It includes the present. It includes, you might want to say, the the, the present and near future, but it also is looking further down the road that's why, for example, in verse 14, God speaks of David's son committing iniquity. It's not talking about Jesus Christ, the son of David, but Solomon, the son of David. Jesus didn't commit iniquity, but Solomon did, and he would be disciplined. Now, what, is, what are the central marks of God's covenant to David? Let's look, first of all, um, at the, the promise of an everlasting throne and kingdom. Notice what it says in verse 13 and 16. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is God speaking. So he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So a house is going to be built, David, but not by you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So a house is going to be built, but now there's going to be a house that is a dynasty that's going to be built by me. And it will be a kingdom that will have a throne and a kingdom forever. Forever. And there's the promise of a righteous son Verses 12 through 15, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. The offspring or the seed of David refers to both any individual descendant, in other words, Solomon and and other kings that might come. Uh, uh, well, Solomon, Christ. It also talks about the ongoing line or dynasty of David, the kings that will rule after David. Verse 13 continues, And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with, uh, with the stripes and the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So the conditions of this covenant um, are, are taken and repeated throughout the years. Now, after David, just one sample place I want to just draw your attention to. Look at 1 Kings chapter 6. First Kings chapter 6. And this is Solomon speaking now. And he's basically repeating what was promised to his father. 1 Kings chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. I don't have time to go into it, but there's all these if-then constructs. If you do what I said you need to do, I promise that this is what's going to happen. If you don't, I've already promised that I'm going to discipline you because I am a father to my people. The third part of the promise here is the promise of God's sovereignty to bring it out. Notice God's hand and work. In this promise, he says, I will raise up your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne. I will be to him a father. I will discipline him with the rod of men. I will love him steadfastly. I will, I will, I will, I will. He's not just promising and then leaving. He's promising and he's carrying it through. David's offspring will be marked by sin Rebellion, disaster, and trouble. Kings would reject God. The nation would be defeated and taken into captivity. But even when that happens, Israel can be sure that God is at work to fulfill his plan and promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, that the son of David would rule and reign forever. You see, these covenantal promises apply beyond David himself. Some promises are fulfilled in David's lifetime. We've seen that. God has already said that, verses 8 through 10. Some promises are fulfilled through David's son, Solomon, who would actually build a temple. Some promises are fulfilled through David's ongoing dynasty, but ultimately these covenant promises are fulfilled in Christ himself. Now listen to Isaiah's words. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You know them because you've, you've been to Christmas services before. But hear what it says. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with rightness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See friends, that is a prophetic word rooted in a promise and it's looking ahead to Jesus who will fulfill that promise because of this Covenant with David. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and following, here's Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. There's the Davidic covenant. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See, friends, this Davidic covenant is not just some historical fact. It actually looks ahead through this this offspring of David to the person of Jesus Christ himself. So the Davidic covenant is also sure. It's been an anchor to God's people through the ages. See, all God's promises are ours in Christ. Paul said it this way, Galatians 3.29. This is the end of, of an argument, but this one verse will summarize it. It says this, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, Heirs according to promise. Well, see, the promise to Abraham ran through the line and ultimately to David and ultimately to Christ. If God can keep his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to David, then surely he can keep his promises to us. This is an anchor not just for David and his offspring. It's an anchor for we who are God's children. We talk about the promises of God, but do we believe the promises of God? Are we anchored in the promises of God? Are we anchored in Christ himself? Do we see that? Now here, friends, this fleshes out now what, what this passage has been unfolding in these last few verses. Number one, death will not dissolve this promise. David may die, but his offspring will continue. Sin cannot destroy it. Even though there is sin in that offspring, it will not undermine God actually accomplishing and fulfilling his promises because there'll be ungodly kings and they will rebel. There'll be godly kings who will act foolishly according to their flesh, but God's love is steadfast. And he will discipline them like a father disciplines a son loving compassionate covenant discipline but he will not abandon them and time will not exhaust it verse 16 and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever your throne shall be established forever and friends even when there seems to be an apparent abandoning Of God to his people, God's promise still rings true. God is still sovereign over his promises to his people. He will fulfill his promises. See, God's promises are not like a battery that wears out. They're like the sun. And the sun is shining every day step out today, you look up into the sky and you're like, alright, where's the sun? Oh, there may be clouds and there may be rain but one thing you know that is true is that behind all those clouds and rain is the sun that continues to shine. See, God's promises are like that. The, 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 the struggles of life may eclipse the promise. It may seem like, where is God in all of this? But he's still Shining. He's still sovereign. He's still fully engaged and fully aware. And verse 17 just summarizes Nathan being a faithful prophet in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now friends, let's just review a little bit. A little review of, of the kinds of ways that we've seen the character of our covenant making God Revealed to us in this text. Notice that he is a, a wise God. He's a humble God. He's a gracious God. He's a promise-keeping God. He's a loving, that's a chesed, steadfast love kind of God. He's a serious and fatherly disciplining God. That's a good thing, even when you're under it. He's a powerful God, He is a committed God, committed to His people. And He is a sovereign God. These attributes are no small matter, friends. They are the evidence of our God who is worthy of our worship. They are testimony to why we call him Lord and our privilege to be called his children, to be called his sons and daughters. They are the reason why we want to know, to apply, and to proclaim both the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ because this is the revelation of the character of God. And so let's just bring this to a close. What is our response to this kind of God? How do we walk away from a text like this? How does God stir us up? And there's four things that that come to mind that may help us here this morning. First of all, a response to God is a response of gratitude. Just like David. Now, in what ways. Do you demonstrate your gratitude to God for His kindness and grace towards you? Are you selfish with your prosperity? Are you thoughtful with it? Are you giving Him the glory or are you attributing the blessing to yourself? Or do you not even think of it in those terms? It's just like, this is just what happened. Let me encourage you to step back and to see the big picture of things. And take time, not just at Thanksgiving, to be a child of God who has gratitude for God's hand at work in your life. Maybe one of the biggest sins in the church is the sin of ingratitude. We just take him for granted. Secondly, teachability. Teachability, maybe not technically a word, but you know what it means. David had a great God-honoring idea, and God said no. And we'll find that he rejoiced in what God said. That's the next time we're together. But David listens, and he worships God are we willing to listen to God even when you're convinced that you know what would honor God? And God comes to you and says, wait a second, but that's not what I want. Yeah, but this is what I want to do to show you how much... I'll... No, 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 that's not what I want. Yeah, but... but that's not what I want. Are you willing to be teachable? And we come with all sorts of things that we've gathered from our lives and that things that we think may be what God wants from our lives, ways in which to honor, ways in which to, to promote his kingdom, that God has a different desire, has a different purpose for you now at this point. So are you willing to pray? Are you willing to seek counsel and even be told that, uh, that, that God has something different for you than maybe what you're dreaming of and what you're passionate about? And that actually, that thing that God wants for you is far better than what you're passionate about and what you're dreaming about. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The passion flows out of God. You let him fashion and shape those things in his time and his way. So are you willing to, to listen to God when he's speaking? Are you hungry to hear his word preached and taught you love to discover his guidance through your personal study of his word? Third, being a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. Are you the kind of person when you say, I promise to someone? Do you mean it? Does it have teeth? And when you fail because you're human, and you will, are you quick to say, you know, maybe I shouldn't have promised that, or I promised it and I should have stood behind my promise. Promises to your spouse, promises to your children, promises to your employer, promises to your friends. I think this is a struggle for us because the word promise has lost some of its bite in American vocabulary. What used to be a handshake, now you have to go to court for. Your word used to be your bond, but now your word can be misinterpreted and twisted to be whatever you want it to be. Be the kind of person that a handshake is enough. Be the kind of person that your word is your bond. And the fourth thing, which is simply a reflection of all of this, is worship worship. We have a God who is worthy to be worshiped, who reinforced his promise over and over and over again and promised the coming of this son through the line of David so that when we begin to open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, just do it just, just for the sake of seeing it. You already know what it's going to say. the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is what it's about. What kind of God can put all this together? (laughs) Man couldn't do this. Only a sovereign God knows what he is doing, and he is worthy of our worship. Lord, help us today. You have turned around, Lord, the heart of a man who desired to honor you by honoring him. That is an awesome thing. And Lord, we see in this passage so many aspects of your character that, that amaze us and draw us to come and desire to bow before you. You've given us responsibilities. You've given us opportunities. But Lord, more than anything, you desire to be with us. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Thank you for the way you deal with your children. Thank you, Lord, even when you have to correct us, that you see the genuineness of of our heart's desire. And that if we wander, Lord, you treat us like a, a father who lovingly, carefully disciplines us. Lord, we, we just, we're so in awe of the fact that you are a gracious, kind God. And this morning, we want to praise you. We want to give ourselves to you afresh. We want to realign ourselves and put ourselves into the context of these promises. That we are the recipient of, of all that there is in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for that, we are truly thankful. We are so undeserving. And yet we are truly thankful for your kindness and your goodness to us. Strengthen us, encourage us, move us, Lord, we ask in your precious name. Amen.